Do you matter? Do human beings matter? Well, if you were to ask that question today, you'd probably get a variety of answers. In fact, it was uh, some time ago that I read a story that had this sign warning humans in their natural environment, and that sign was posted in the London Zoo. It was the year 2005, and eight humans, five men and three women, were in an exhibit, like you would see the lions or the elephants, and they were there in the zoo. <clears throat> um, one of the animals, the person that was portraying one of the animals, his name was Tom Mahoney, and he said this. <clears throat> he said, a lot of people think humans are above other animals, and when they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds us that we're not really that special. Mark Ainsworth, a 21-year-old resident of London, he heard about this human exhibit in the zoo. And Mark said, I've lived in this country for nine years and have never actually come to this zoo. But when I heard about this, I wanted to come because I understand that humans are animals too. From his perspective, it was simply another way to remind us that we're not really all that significant or different than others. What I found interesting in this article is that I read that visitors stopped by. The article goes on and says visitors stopped by this exhibit. Some pointed, some laughed. And then they said several children could be heard asking, why are there people in there? And I thought to myself, you have these adults playing this game and the kids are the only one that get it. People don't belong there. What are they doing in there? So it depends on who you ask. Do you matter? There's a lady named Ingrid Newkirk, and she is the founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And Newkirk is well known for a statement when she's talking about the significance of human beings, and if there's really any significance between human beings and people, um, she has stated that um, eating animals or consuming animals is, is kind of akin to the Nazi Holocaust. She said six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion chickens die every year in slaughterhouses, and those are the same thing. And thus she has this kind of famous statement, her words, that a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. There's no difference between those things. Mammals, we would call them. In other words, all are on the same ethical plane. There really is no difference or distinction in morality or significance among any other mammal or animal for that regard. So what are we to make of this? Do you matter? Are you insignificant? Well, Psalm 8 actually addresses this very question. In fact, it asks this question. Did you notice it in verse 4? The question reads this way, What is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's asking this question. He's saying, what is it about me that God, who his, this psalm is directed to, he says that God himself 
is mindful of me, or he, he looks at me different than the other animals that he'll, he'll state later on in this psalm. What is it that makes man significant? And here's why David is asking the question. He's asking the question because in light of all that God has made, he feels so insignificant. This question is in response to something amazing that he sees about God. And what are those amazing things? Look at verse 3. David said, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I look at those things and consider their vastness, I ask myself the question, what makes me significant? What did David see? Well, perhaps he saw something like this. Do you know what that is? What do we call that? Actually, it's the Milky Way, all right? The Milky Way. And it's kind of like if you get out on a dark place in a dark sky away from light pollution and you look up in the heavens, you can see where it looks like all the stars are just kind of strung together. Um, I, I've seen it just like this, if not brighter, 10 to 12,000 feet in the Rockies. When you are away from all light pollution, you're that much higher off the Earth's surface, and you look in that black sky, and it looks like it's exploding like that. And I think this is what David must have seen. Shepherd out on the hillside, again, absence of light pollution. And he's looking at the amazement of the sky and pondering it, and he says, God, you are so big and so vast. Why would you think of me? Now, we have more than David had when it comes to our knowledge of the vastness of creation and the universe, right? David sees this Milky Way galaxy, we call it that now, and what we know now from just our observation of the stars and various things is that if you were to get outside of our planet and kind of take a look at, at what is outside of us and look at that Milky Way galaxy from outside of itself, it would actually look something like this. And we're looking at the flat side. Think of a saucer, and we're looking at the flat side of the saucer. When you're looking at it in the sky, you're looking at the edge of the saucer. That's why all those stars are put together that way. But if you come outside of it, you're looking at it like this. What is this Milky Way galaxy? Did you realize that this is 100,000 light years across, this Milky Way galaxy? You say, well... 100,000 light years. Uh, that sounds like a lot, but I have no idea, right? Well, a light year is the distance light travels in one Earth year. And light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. So in one year, you could travel 6 trillion miles if you're traveling the speed of light. Well, again, how fast is the speed of light? Well, if you were traveling the speed of light, let's say you got in a, some kind of vehicle that would help you to travel that, that fast, and you got in uh, that vehicle, and we started you at the equator, and you were going to go around the equator, and you got in, you started, we said go, in one second, you would circle the earth seven times. So imagine that. Mark, get set, go, stop. Just seven times you've circled the earth. That's the speed of light. 
And so if you take that distance and say, how far can I travel that way? It would take you 100,000 years to span the Milky Way galaxy. Could you say that's big? It's huge. Well, you look at that galaxy and you say, yeah, that's really big. You know what? We're probably somewhere in the center of that galaxy, wouldn't you think? I mean, look at that bright center. It probably all revolves around Earth. Well, if you were to point out Earth in the Milky Way galaxy, we're somewhere out there. Not even at the center. We're 25,000 light years from the center. And so given the vastness of this and, and the largeness of this and that we're not even the center of our own universe... Uh, by the way, it's estimated that there could be as many as 200 billion to 2 trillion additional galaxies in the whole universe, and the Milky Way is just a small one. And so you think about that, and it's mind-blowing how, how big and huge that is. When you think of it that way, have you ever thought, and in all of that, God, why would you think about me? Why would you have any interest in me? And this is David's sentiment. He recognizes the vastness of God's creation and it makes him feel insignificant. But he knows he's not. He knows God does think about him. Why? Well, it has to do with human dignity. Human dignity. Why are human beings dignified or why are they paid attention to by God? Well, the first thing we need to note is that human dignity stems from God's glory. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This is God's glory. When, when David looks at the vastness of that, he says it reminds me of how big and how great God is. We read of this in other psalms, most notably Psalm 19. The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. They are proclaiming something about God's greatness and his vastness. And, and human dignity, the dignity that any human being has that gives them significance, doesn't stem solely from their own existence. It has something to do with God's glory, something to do with who He is. Because what we're going to find out later in the passage is this, is that God has a glory that extends beyond the heavens and His greatness, but God also, according to verse 5, gives man glory crowns him with glory and honor. And that glory is, is a sharing or even an extension of God's own glory. And so man's glory has something to do with God's glory. Human dignity begins there. And what we know is that God's glory is seen in the heavens, his vastness, his perfectness, his greatness, but verse 1 tells us that this majestic God, his name is to be known where? On the earth. And that's exactly what verse 9 tells us as well. These are like bookends of thought on this psalm. God is glorious and great, but that glory, God desires that it is to be known on the earth. 
You can see it in the heavens, but God wants it declared and made known on the earth. And that's the second thing, is that God intends that his glory be known on the earth. Now, how is God going to do that? How is he going to make his glory known on this planet? Well, look at verse 5. David says of mankind, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. The reference there is to angelic beings. And he says that humanity has been made a little lower than them. How is that the case? Well, whenever we read in the Bible of angelic beings, you read oftentimes of their magnificence and oftentimes just of their strength, right? You read that one angel killed 180 180 or 185,000, I forget exactly, Assyrians in the time of Sennacherib when they surrounded Jerusalem. Now, what man could do that? But this was an angelic being, and God says, you have made them a little, you've made us a little lower than the angels, David says. We don't have the same magnitude of strength and, and glory like the angels, but there's something different about mankind, Right? And here's what's different about mankind. Look at verse 6. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, verse 5. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And how is that displayed? Verse 6. You have given him what? Dominion. You've given him this kind of role over everything that you have made, this dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. God did this from the very beginning. You may recall that after God makes Adam in Genesis chapter 1, he tells him, have dominion over the earth. And that was a part of displaying God's glory in the earth. God himself is a great king. He's the creator of all that there is. And God, as it were, has on the earth his vice regents or those through whom he would reign on the earth. And he has set up mankind, men and women, to reign in that way, to have dominion over the things that he has made. And this is the glory of God. We are made in the image of God, and we are to image God in this way by exercising that dominion over the things that he has made under his authority. That is what God has given us to do. Now, what does this dominion look like? Well, David talks about dominion over sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and fish of the sea. He's talking about all the animal kingdom, that there's a distinction between man, uh, mankind and, and the animal kingdom, that mankind are to rule over that, not to abuse it, but to exercise appropriate dominion over that. This idea of dominion also has the idea of a conscious effort to discover the secret treasures of the earth, as it were, and develop those to their fullest potential and do so to maximize human flourishing of people getting together and figuring out how to get clean water out of the earth so that people don't get sick and die. People understanding how to how to make a, an ecosystem, an environment that is suitable for 
inhabitable people and not to destroy it, for people to inhabit and not to destroy it. This is the idea of, of taking dominion of the earth. And it goes way beyond that. When, when David talks about you have given him dominion over all that you have made, and David is sitting on a hillside and looking up into the heaven, at the moon perhaps, do you think David would have ever imagined that somebody like him would place a footprint on that moon? Like this? You know whose footprint that is? Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin was on the Apollo mission with Armstrong. Armstrong was the first to take a step, but it's Buzz Aldrin's footprint that gets all the publicity because he knew enough to take a picture of it. And what, what kind of, of creature made by God in his image can take dominion over the things that God has put under his care and and fashion it in a way that he can get himself to the moon and walk on it. That's amazing. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. It's part of being human. Chimpanzees don't dream that way. They don't think that way. But human beings do. Because of God's glory. And we reflect God's glory in that. However, although this is the case, and, and God is mindful of us, yet we are not so mindful of ourselves. In fact, there's a problem. And Psalm 8 actually looks to that problem. Look at verse 2. David says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you, Lord, have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David is speaking to God, and he says, God, you have foes. You have an enemy. Who would that be? Here's God's plan that through Mankind that he has made, that they would image God perfectly in the earth and take dominion over the things that God has made and, and demonstrate the goodness of God even in how they exercise that dominion. But there's an enemy. There's an enemy that wishes to sabotage that good plan of God. And so you have these creatures made in the image of God that can do amazing things and even go to the moon and yet those same creatures devalue themselves so much that they would abort millions of their own kind intentionally over the past 50 years. Amazing, isn't it? How does that happen? How does it happen that these dignified creatures made in God's image intent to display Him in the world that He has made, that, that they would make the 20th century the bloodiest century of our planet through genocide, and war, and conflict? 
How did we lose our way? Because verse 2 says there's an enemy. This enemy is noted in the scripture from the beginning. He has a name. His, His name means adversary. And he is Satan. And it's his desire to actually disgrace the image of God. That God's fame would not be displayed on the earth. That there would be a mistrust of this one good God who made all things. And mankind in falling prey to his deception, instead of looking up and wondering at the greatness and the glory of God, instead has turned our gaze from the heavens to look at the creatures that God has made and said we're not so much different than those. And Romans 1 says you actually become like those, unreasoning, unable to distinguish what is right and what is wrong without sense. And this is that ancient foe described as the serpent and his seed. And the serpent desires to deface God's glory. And because he cannot attack God the Creator directly, he wishes to deface the image of God wherever he finds it and cause mankind to fall and to fail in what they are to do in imaging God. But that's not the end of the story. There is an enemy that seeks to destroy God's glory. But finally tonight, I want you to note this. Verse 2 also says this. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. And God has done something in the mouth of babies and infants because there is an enemy. Well, well, how does this work? This is God's intent to display His glory. An enemy seeks to sabotage that and deceive humanity into forgetting about that calling of God and to image Him perfectly. But God has established infants to somehow establish strength or, or praise, as we'll see. And how does that Defeat this enemy. But that is the last thing we'll look at tonight, that weak humans are to proclaim God's glory. Let me show you what I mean by that. This passage, Psalm 8, is quoted in the New Testament. And there are two times in particular I want us to note where it's quoted. Once we're going to see how Jesus uses this passage. And it's very appropriate now that you know the context of Psalm 8. So turn there with me. Look at Matthew chapter 21. And when we come to Matthew 21, we're reading about Jesus during the last week of his life. He has just entered Jerusalem. Uh, The triumphal entry has already occurred. He has entered Jerusalem. Uh, The the crowd has shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They've acknowledged him. What they're saying is this is the Messiah, the one from David's line that was promised. And during uh, the early parts of that week, Jesus would once again cleanse the temple. He did so on two occasions, once early in his ministry. This is now a later occasion during this last week of his passion. And we pick up the story in verse 12. 
Matthew 21, 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Those chief priests and the scribes were upset about that. Verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Why are they so upset about that? Because they know that this proclamation, Hosanna to the son of David, is ascribing to Jesus this high position of the God-promised Messiah. He was the one that they were looking for and hoping in, and now you have these children, and they're saying that out loud, and these chief priests are saying, are you going to let them just do that, praise you that way? Because they obviously don't believe this is true, and they're upset. To them, it's like blasphemy. And look at what the Lord says. Middle of verse 16, and Jesus said to them, yes, I hear what they're saying. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Now, there's one thing we need to note here. If you'll notice in Psalm 8, what we read back in Psalm 8 and verse 2 was this. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. When Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2, he says, out of the mouth of infants and babies, you have prepared praise. There's a substitute of prepared praise, Jesus says, instead of established strength. Why is that different? Well, Jesus is quoting his Bible. And his Bible would have been something called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this is the way that the Septuagint reads in, in that context. And what the Septuagint does is it actually interprets that phrase of Psalm 8-2 in its translation. Because that's really what is being proclaimed in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of infants and babies, you have established strength. Not that you have established the strength of those infants and babies, but out of their mouths, your strength is established. How would that be the case? It would be because people would praise you rightfully for who you are. Those infants and children would say the true thing about you and establish your true position, establish your strength. Do you see that? So that's the right interpretation. How do we know? Because Jesus said it, right? He's not going to make a wrong interpretation. But here's the point. Do you see how this parallels perfectly what we see in Psalm 8? You have these enemies of God, enemies of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. In fact, Jesus on another occasion in John chapter 8 will say this, you are of your father the devil. And what he's saying is, you're the seed of the serpent. And they were constantly at odds with him. In fact, they're the ones that pushed the people to crucify him. 
And here, again, the enemies are coming to speak against God and his rightful representative, the one true Messiah on earth. And Jesus pulls all the way back to Psalm 8, and he says, don't you understand? It's out of the mouth of children like these that they're telling you the truth. You're not listening even to the children, these weak children. But they got it right. The powerful Pharisees represent the seed of the serpent, the foe, but it's the little children that are proclaiming the truth about Jesus. They're establishing his rightful place. And that brings us to the second place that this psalm is quoted in your New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to look there. And really what we find in Hebrews chapter 2 is that, that this, the author here, really points to the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. He obviously is writing to Jewish people that knew very well this psalm. They would have been taught this probably from the time they were children. And just, just notice the ultimate fulfillment that this writer points to, all right? Look at... Uh, Hebrews 2, look at verse 5. We read in verse 5. The writer says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And just a note about that, he has argued in the first chapter that, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that the angels of God were actually to worship him. And so he's going to go on with that notion that even as a man, the angels, that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? Verse 5, again, he says, It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that's a quote from where? Psalm 8, that's what we've been looking at. Now, notice how he applies it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And the him is speaking of Jesus. Now, look at verse 9. But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. When was that? When was Jesus for a little while made lower than the angels? When he took on human flesh and became man who was made a little lower than the angels. It's not saying ultimately in his position, it's saying when you looked at Jesus while he walked on earth, you didn't say, oh, there's God. Because he veiled his deity and became a little lower than the angels taking upon humanity. Why did he do that? Look at verse 9. He was made a little lower than the, than the angels, namely Jesus, but crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He was made a little lower than the angels. He became human so that he might suffer and die 
but through that he would be crowned with this great glory. What does that mean? You remember what Jesus said after he was resurrected? He's on the hillside with many of his followers. He's, he's showing himself the resurrected Christ. And in Matthew 28 at the end, he says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. In other words, what he's saying is, all this dominion, the dominion that, that Adam had forfeited in his fall, and not properly imaged God? Jesus says, through my death and burial and resurrection, now all that dominion is mine. All authority in heaven and on earth. And so look at what else he says. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, and the he there is speaking of God the Father. He was just referenced back in verse 9. That God the Father, for whom all and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who's the founder of salvation? It's Jesus Christ. And God says, in making him perfect through suffering or giving him to the place where he has ultimate dominion and that dominion is restored under him, God did that through Jesus in order also to bring many sons to glory. Who are those people? Who else shares in this glory of this one that has all dominion and authority and properly images God in the earth? We'll keep reading. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, that he's referring to Jesus, Jesus who sanctifies, talking of these sons, and those who are sanctified all have one source. Okay, now let me explain that to you. He's saying, here's Jesus who by his death, he's going to sanctify others. And those that are sanctified by Jesus, they all have this one source. What's the source speaking of? They all have the same father. Because that's why he mentions sons in verse 10. That Jesus is the son of God and you through faith in him, guess what? You are a child of God. And it's this God that brings new life. Now keep reading verse 11. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Saying, and now he quotes the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I'll do what? Sing your praise. What he's saying is, I will tell of this to the brothers like me, and in the midst of the congregation together, we will sing the praise of God. Who are these brothers? We could say brothers and sisters. Well, he gives another quote. Again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
And it doesn't mean that he has children. It means I and, and those also who are God's children. We will sing praise together. We will honor and praise this great God. Here's what the author of Hebrews is doing with Psalm 8. He's saying that psalm is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he became a little lower than the angels and he sacrificed himself. And guess what? There will be people who place their faith in Jesus Christ and they will acknowledge their lack of properly imaging God, falling short of that glory of God, and they will recognize that Jesus is the only one who has perfectly done that and place their faith in him, thereby becoming his brothers and sisters. And all of them will establish God's strength by praising him. And it's out of the mouth of weak people, people who are broken and have difficulty in properly imaging God, like infants, that they'll be the ones that sing God's praise because they've been united to the chief one, Jesus Christ by faith. And what we see here is this is God's plan. It has always been his plan that these creation of his, that those image bearers of his would properly image him in the earth. We all fall short of that. But Jesus Christ does it perfectly. And through faith in him, we're united to him. And in accordance with faith in him and by help from him, we are restored to that image. We ourselves are made like him, that we too would sing praise and establish God's glory in the earth. And beloved, this is why God is mindful of us. It's because he has a mission for us. Again, that mission is based on his own glory. But that mission looks like this. God is on a mission to make his glory known in the earth through people who, through faith in Christ, are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is what God is doing. Now, I want to apply this to us in two ways tonight. <clears throat> Here's what that means for us. Number one, I ask this question, do you matter? What's the answer? Yes, you matter, probably more than you realize. Maybe you have thought to yourself often, I don't matter to anybody. I don't know that anybody really cares about me. If I were gone tomorrow, would it make any difference? Am I really making a difference in anybody's life? I don't think I matter to God. Well, God says of all the things that I have made, you matter the most. Because I have a mission. And it's my desire that through your understanding, fulfillment of this mission, through faith in Christ, that you would properly image me 
And you would find all your fulfillment in that. We oftentimes, as, as the Lord's people, we focus on our sin and our fallenness. And it is true, none of us perfectly image God. And even after faith in Christ, we still struggle with this. But it doesn't decrease your dignity. God still has this mission. The question is, is that your mission? So do you matter? Yes, you matter. Human beings matter. And because you matter, here's what else that means. Other people matter. Those other people that you disagree with vociferously. The ones that make you so angry because they just can't see things straight. The ones you read about in the news. The ones that hold those different political views. And there's such angst and rancor among our nation because people just really think those kind of people don't matter. I wish they would just be expunged from the earth. And of all people, God's people, who know God's perfect plan for humanity, should have pity on people like that and should treat them with a certain kind of dignity. Even people who proclaim to know not God and, and care to know nothing about Him and live a lifestyle that is, is so completely immoral against Him. Those people bear God's image. And perhaps through your kindness to them, through your graciousness to them. Not your compromise, but your kindness and your graciousness that God might win them and that they too would come to faith in Christ and properly image Him. And that in itself would speak something of God's glory, would it not? So, beloved, it's, it's in this matter of God's mission and who we are that really informs how we treat other people, how we think about ourselves. And sometimes, in my own heart, I just have to remind myself I'm talking to somebody made in God's image. And there's, there's dignity there. And there's importance there to God. And I ought to see it. May God help us do just that. Well, this is a good start for us.